We may open our Bibles to Acts chapter 28, and we'll continue where we left off in that first service in Acts chapter 27. That last verse of Acts chapter 27 is a precious one. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Acts 28. So they have come to land, and they weren't sure what it was, and they made their way into a creek, and the ship was broken. So they're without transportation on an island in the Mediterranean after a two-week storm. And we come to Acts 28. First six verses. It also has five sections. And when they were escaped... Then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while, and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And amen. amen. And so the Bible is amusing, and it's informative, as it gives us this history of Paul's trip from Jerusalem to Rome. 276 men made it safely to Malta. Barbarians are not as bad as you might think by the word. They simply didn't know Greek or Latin. They had their own language, the Maltese language on the island of Malta, and that's how the word barbarian is used. You don't have to think of an American Indian dancing around a fire or something and not knowing anything in that sense, but these were not educated people in either Greek or Latin. Neither the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire had had as much influence on them as it had on others. Now, the Lord arranges every single circumstance. And the Lord, a long time ago, had purposed that there would be a viper born on the island of Malta. And that that viper would find its way into wood that would be gathered by the Maltese to help these 276 get warm. And that out of 276 men, it wouldn't be the 275 but Paul, that was throwing wood on the fire, when the viper came out and latched onto him and hung there so that they knew he was getting its poison. It's all perfect. This is taking up serpents the Bible way. We believe in taking up serpents, but only the Bible way. We don't take up serpents the Pentecostal way of keeping them in boxes and bringing them to church for sport. Paul didn't carry rattlesnakes around in a work box or a toolbox for sport 
the Apostle Paul did, wasn't looking for this viper. The Lord sent the viper, and the timing is flawless. Amen. Now, these barbarians had shown them no little kindness already, but they will show them more kindness when Paul shakes it off and doesn't swell up and doesn't fall down dead suddenly. They had a rather significant change of mind that instead of a criminal, he's a god. Yes. Just beautiful. And while they went to extremes in their change of mind, it was why God allowed his apostles to take up serpents. But let's notice the opposite religion. Their religion was one of fate. They knew it was a prisonership. They knew that Paul was a prisoner. They knew that their gods had rattled the Mediterranean Sea to kill him. Their gods had chased him all the way from, from Crete over to Malta. But he had escaped their gods in the sea, but now their gods and fate was going to get Paul by the viper. Wrong and wrong. Paul's God, whom, whose he was and whom he served, had a purpose in all of this for the benefit of Paul and for the benefit of others, including us, that would benefit by Paul surviving. But it did change the minds of these barbarians, so they treated Paul even better after this. The Lord Jesus Christ had promised his apostles would take up serpents, and this is the way to do it. And to take up serpents was to show them a mighty miracle, a sign wonder that would get their attention to listen to their words. And so when they saw, as we're going to come to it in a minute, when they saw that Paul had power over such a venomous snake bite, they wanted to see some other healing as well. They fatalistically saw vengeance. You know, in the Bible, can you think of three very wise men and three men that knew God very well that want to blame circumstances on God punishing? You're going to have to fight me when you want to do that because I find no virtue in it to think that God's punishing me when something bad happens in life. There's a lot of other reasons bad things happen, including the glory of God, which is a very good thing. Those three men were life as Bildad and Zophar. That for Job to be having those kind of experiences must mean you've been hiding secret sins from us, Job, and God's afflicting you and punishing you for your secret sins. That was not the case whatsoever. The case was God needed to manifest himself to Job, his three friends, and us, that God is greater than man. And he can do whatever he chooses with any one of us. And Job eventually learned the lesson. Elihu always knew the lesson. And then Job had to pray for those three friends because God didn't want to hear from them. Because of their wicked cruelty toward Job. Now, if we do it to ourselves... That's even worse. That's a masochistic tendency that you want to look at circumstances of life of God punishing you. That's only one reason things happen. And the Lord doesn't like to punish, and he doesn't like to afflict. They're the rare treatment. It's called the strange work of God in the Bible. He's a good, he is good, and he is love. And so let's try to remember that and not turn out to be fatalists like these barbarians. They sound like Nebuchadnezzar in his great extreme from wanting to punish anyone that followed the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
to promising to punish anybody that didn't follow the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But when you don't have a solid foundation or an anchor for your faith, you can bounce all over the place. We have an anchor, and so we're not going to change what we believe unless God sends us a tsunami of evidence from our Bible. So we're going to continue to hold to it, and we don't change because we have an anchor. And so when the storm of the final day of judgment or a storm of life comes, we're built upon a rock instead of upon the sand of false religion. Let's go to verse 7, and we'll read to verse 10. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. Now there's 276 of them. Maybe that's just Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, centurion, and guards. But it says us, courteously. Verse 8, And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the island, came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors. And when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. So they got all their needs met, and they got numerous honors bestowed upon them by these barbarians. You don't really want to know what a bloody flux is, but since you're waiting to find out, it's very bad dysentery. So now think about it. But this man had a fever and a bloody flux, very bad dysentery, and the Apostle Paul was able to heal him, and so others came and were healed. And Paul, the Lord is arranging through Paul. Notice, this is a unique situation. There are no conversions mentioned. In fact, I had to have this map altered by our document forger in the church who's very good at what she does who will be in California far away from your reach this week. But she is able to take documents. It's no harm done to anyone to correct somebody's work that we're using and to take off from that little box that says, Paul bitten by a viper suffers no harm. And it said, many are healed and came to faith in Christ. No, the Bible doesn't tell us that. And the Lord doesn't have to get a conversion out of every healing miracle because he got something else. He got great care for the Apostle Paul and Luke and Aristarchus out of the event and the centurion so that they had enough to take another ship. And now ship number three will get them to Rome. Verse 11 of Acts 28. And after three months, oh, three months on Malta, 276 men, but they had the wheat for bread, right? No, they didn't have anything but broken pieces of the ship and boards and wet clothes. So those barbarians took great care of a large group of men for three months. Verse 11, And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in this isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. And landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. 
And from thence we fetched a compass and came to Regium. And after one day the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Appii Forum and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. The Lord is making a difference in Paul's life all the way through this, including arriving in the city of Rome. Paul and company stayed on the island of Malta for more than three months. Paul's third ship was out of Alexandria, Egypt, and had wintered there as well in Malta. Castor and Pollux were the pagan Greek twin sons of Jupiter who protected sailors. Paul's not worshiping them. It just says that when they had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux, this ship of Alexandria would have flown a flag or would have had some other ensign honoring these two gods of Jupiter for safety out the seas by their god. But our god had taken care of Paul. Now he's on his third ship and he'll make it all the way this time. He's taken to the eastern port of Syracuse on the island of Sicily from Malta. And from Syracuse, Syracuse, the ship took a route to maintain course to Regium. Now it says fetch a compass, and that doesn't mean to go to the tool shed and find a compass. It means to maneuver your ship or to set course for Regium. And so there's some terminology. Some of you came to me and said you noticed under color there about the uh, sailors that were trying to sneak off the ship under color of going to let out anchors out of the forecastle of the boat. And so there's different terminology that we're not used to, and I will get you all straightened out on the word under Cyprus and under Crete. I'm sorry about the map, and I'm sorry about you not seeing that it was under Cyprus, even in the way we understand the word. But every time you look at a map like this, and it changes any, any city or any angles, the angle from one city to another is changed dramatically. And you know that they went around Cyprus, and that's the word you would have preferred, that they sailed around Cyprus, but that's not the word the Holy Ghost gave us in a King James Bible. We know that they had to go the longer route because the winds were contrary, and they couldn't take the direct route straight across from Caesarea to Myra. And so we've got fetch a compass, which means to set course toward Regium. And from Regium, the ship sailed rapidly with good winds, and if you look at the length of that red arrow from Regium up to Puteoli, that is a stretch to do in 30 hours. That is really getting some great speed out of the boat. And the Bible tells us that, that they gained a great southerly wind blowing up out of the south that would have propelled them that way very well. Now, when believers in Rome heard that he was coming... They went 56 miles to Appii Forum to meet him. And even the Apostle Paul took courage, which means he had been afraid. He was nervous. He was a little worried about getting into Rome because it was for his life. 
if Caesar denied him, if, and it was Nero Caesar, if Caesar denied him, it was going to be dangerous. But he took courage when he saw brethren. And, you know, these brethren had to travel, probably by foot, 56 miles to encourage the Apostle Paul. We should be willing to do that. You know, we have prayed for a particular family in our church right now that we want to encourage to take courage more than any of the rest of us need our help, that one family. The Lord arranges these kind of events for us. On an ordinary basis, in our ordinary lives, we don't need to take courage because there's nothing intimidating or frightening or difficult. But there's a family that has a great deal of difficulty right now and a great deal of fear, naturally speaking, though not spiritually, because they're doing very well, but we want to encourage them. Let's remember that the Apostle Paul would have been like David. I like thinking of David as God's favorite of the Old Testament, and Paul, his favorite of the New Testament. And those two both were not, fear was not foreign to them. David said, what time I am afraid, I will put my trust in him. Right. And the Apostle Paul did the same thing. Whose I am and whom I serve, and I believe God. Put his trust in God. And that's just what we want to do. And so he comes all the way to Rome, and because the Lord has providentially taken care of him, do you know how much that centurion owed the Apostle Paul? to report to the legionnaire, the head of the, of the Augustus legion, of the August, that had the Augustus band, and say that all passengers were accounted for. Every sailor, every soldier, every prisoner was accounted for and had made it to Rome. And so Paul is not put in the common hold with the other prisoners. He's allowed to rent a house off Craigslist, and he has a soldier with him, to keep track of them a little tiny bit. They don't have ankle bracelets in those days. So he had a soldier, and Paul was able to have people visit him. He was able to write epistles, which we'll get to in a moment. He was able to preach the gospel. He was able to hold meetings. He was able to hold conferences with large numbers of religious leaders coming in as we're about to read. And so the Lord took care of him all the way. That centurion owed the apostle Paul a great deal. And he showed it to him, and the Lord's providence of giving him considerable freedom in the city of Rome. Amen. And it brings us to verse 17 of Acts 28. Now I'm going to read a lengthy passage of 13 verses to the 29th verse, because this is Paul getting in Rome and immediately going to business. And business is not sowing tents. Not now. Business is calling the Jewish elders together, to find out where the Jews in Rome stood and what he had to tell them. And the book of Acts will end. Verse 17, And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people, or customs of our fathers. Yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, would have let me go, because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, 
I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that I had aught to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Don't forget those words. For the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, We neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. Wonderful. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people, and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. Amen and amen. It's a long passage of Scripture, but it's Scripture. He called the Jews together and told them, I did not come here to Rome because I had an accusation against my nation. They forced me to it. They were accusing me of crimes that I was not guilty of, and the Romans would have let me go free, and that is why I appealed to Caesar. I am here because of the way they mistreated me, and I am here for the hope of Israel. This is very important to anyone that wants to understand the Bible and the errors of modern Schofieldism and dispensationalism. The hope of Israel. Did Paul then, and twice we're told what he preached to them, do you want to see it? Verse 23. He expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus. Verse 31. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. Dispensationalists, Schofieldites, want us to believe that the hope of Israel is the millennial kingdom. The millennium, when they get to be chief dogs on earth again, and they get to reestablish Jerusalem, supposedly have a third temple built, restore animal sacrifices, the Gentiles become their woodcutters and water haulers because we're second-class citizens. That is what dispensationalism teaches about the future of this world that there's a seven-year tribulation coming, and then Jesus will come back from earth and establish some pitiful little kingdom over there in the Middle East called the Millennial Kingdom. 
But Paul didn't say anything like that to these Jews. He didn't offer them any preeminence on earth whatsoever. All he did was preach and teach Jesus Christ. That is the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel from the beginning had been that a Savior would come through that nation. That a virgin would give birth to a son whose name would be called the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father. That he would sit upon the throne of David and rule with a rod of iron forever and ever. And in the days of these Roman kings, before this event, Daniel had already prophesied and John the Baptist and Jesus had already confirmed that the kingdom of God had already arrived in Israel. The Bible tells us the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. There were men pressing into the kingdom of God in the days of John the Baptist and the days of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And here we are, 30 years later, the kingdom is well established in the world. It's not some millennial kingdom. Paul never mentioned a millennial kingdom to the Jews. Paul never taught any such thing as a millennial kingdom for the Jews. When he preached about the kingdom of God, he preached Jesus Christ because Jesus is king. That's the kingdom. Jesus rules, especially over those who submit themselves to him by baptism and believe on him. That's the hope of Israel. That's the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by him and his spiritual reign over believers on this earth. There is nothing in Acts. There is nothing in any of his epistles. You say, well, he wrote to Gentiles. So that's why he didn't say anything about the millennial kingdom. I beg to differ. He wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. And when he wrote the book to the Hebrews, he was trying to convince the Jews that had been converted and baptized to remain Christians and not to backslide. It was the perfect opportunity to tell them that the millennial kingdom was theirs. But what he never said a word about that, he said, ye are come unto a kingdom, and it's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament, which has already been in existence for 30 years. Ye are come unto Mount Zion, which is above. Ye have come to a heavenly Jerusalem, which is above. You have come to the spirits of just men made perfect, which are above. You have come to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, because it is not animal sacrifices. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what he said in Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. When he had the Jewish audience, he did not mention anything about their future supremacy on earth. He mentioned their joint union with the spirits of just men in heaven of a spiritual kingdom with Jesus Christ reigning over it from a heavenly Jerusalem and a heavenly Mount Zion. And he said, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved because this is the last kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, not beating Gentiles to chop our wood and draw our water. Unbelievable. Unbelievable what people have come up with in the name of some future millennial kingdom. Unbelievable. They go back to places like Isaiah 11, where it says the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and they think that there's going to be some millennial kingdom where you won't need bars between the cages in a zoo. That's that's how earthly they think. 
They can't think spiritually because Isaiah 11 is all about the ensign of the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul quotes Isaiah 11 in Romans 15 as having been fulfilled with Jesus Christ coming. And the wolf lying down with the lamb is you having me as your pastor. You're the lambs. And I'm the wolf. In a natural sense of those words, not a spiritual, religious, or ministerial, I just got myself into a deep one on that. <laughs> what I mean is personally, it's how the Lord would take away all animosity and bring the ten tribes back, connect them with Judah and Benjamin, bring Gentiles in. Look at Paul. Who came to encourage Paul 56 miles? Were they Jews? They were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. Look at the affection between Gentiles and Jews. That's the wolf and the lamb. That's Isaiah 11. And we don't have any more time for any of that, but it's just pitiful. But, you, but here, here Paul sits with these Jewish elders, and he explains, I'm here because of the hope of Israel. And what does he preach to them about the hope of Israel? Is it a future millennial kingdom? Is it some third temple in that little trashy city called Jerusalem? Listen, God left that thing 2,000 years ago and said, I leave your house unto you desolate. And he ground it to powder and tore apart every single stone in it and tore up the foundations thereof so that there was nothing left of it. So that passerbyers could hardly know that it ever existed as a city. That's what the Romans did to it by the order of the God of heaven. It has never meant anything to him since. There is nothing over there. Those are the, mo those are the biggest Christ haters on earth. It's the church of Jesus Christ, which is the temple of the living God, scattered in all nations, made up of converted Jews and Gentiles. We are the seed of Abraham. They're not the seed of Abraham. We're the seed of Abraham. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 compared the Jews in, in Israel to Hagar and Ishmael. But compared us Gentiles, it's written in Galatians. Do you know where Galatia is? It's way across the Mediterranean Sea from Israel. Those were Gentile churches. That the Galatians are Sarah and Isaac. Those are wonderful verses in the Bible. Amen. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. Galatians 3.16. Right. He saith not to seeds as of many, but to seed as of one. Which seed is Christ? Amen. Who is the seed of Abraham? It's not the Jews in the Middle East. It's the believers in Jesus Christ. That's what Galatians 3 teaches. And so Paul is teaching that to the Jews. They don't really want to believe it. They just want to pick. They want to know more about this sect that is everywhere spoken against. And that's what we believe. Those were Christians. The sect of the Christians being spoken against by the pagans, being spoken against by the Jews. So everybody was against them. And Paul said he could see that they weren't going to believe him. So he quotes from Isaiah. And this passage from Isaiah is quoted over and over and over. Isaiah, a time's coming when I'm going to destroy this nation. I'm going to send prophets to them. And I'm going to send apostles to them. And they're not going to hear. I've stopped up their ears. I've stopped up their eyes. They're going to reject what I preach to them because I don't want to convert them. but he converted his elect people out of Israel all the way through. Right. There was his elect people. 
You know, it goes back to that simple question that we like to ask people that haven't heard some of these things before. We like to ask, why did Jesus speak in parables? And if they're relying on what they learned in Sunday school, they'll often say, well, Jesus spoke in parables to help the common man understand because a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But that's the opposite of the truth. Matthew 13, 10 through 17 tells us that Jesus explained, because a parable is not easy to understand. A parable is no simple earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable is a proverb and very difficult to figure out. Jesus said, I speak unto them in parables so that they will not understand, and I'll explain it to you disciples in private. And he gives that Isaiah 6 prophecy again there in Matthew 13. And so it is so sad. People heard the Apostle Paul in person. And here we Gentiles, look what Paul said about us Gentiles. Verse 28, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And here we are, and we will hear it. And we love hearing it. And we want to hear more of it. And Paul, we love every single word that you teach. And we love the words, the hope of Israel. And we love the kingdom of God. And we love your explanation of it. And we love Hebrews chapter 12. We love everything that you wrote, Paul. And so the Lord's made that difference. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. Let's never depart. Let's never go home and have any reasoning in ourselves against the word of God. Let's just humble ourselves and have reasoning against us and our lives if we're not conformed perfectly to God's word. It's a terrible shame what happened. They got to hear Paul in person. We're 2,000 years removed from Paul, but we love reading his words on the page that Luke wrote down for us. And so we come to the last two verses. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Look at the freedom he had. Look at how the Lord arranged that he would be in a protected situation in Rome and be able to hear, preach to anyone, write anyone, and have anyone come to visit him. And he got to preach the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome. He had said he wanted to get to Rome. The Lord got him to Rome. It was a difficult journey, but the Lord arranged all the circumstances that we get to read and rejoice that even when a Luke and Paul think that any hope of being saved is gone, there's still salvation. So that we can take comfort that when we think, I'm never going to get out of this. Oh, yes, we can get out of it by the grace of God. And so we come to the end of the book of Acts. What will you do with the message that God sent you about his son and the great mystery of godliness that Jesus would be preached to the Gentiles and believed on in the world? Let's remember two Ps. Let's praise him for sending his truth to us and let's publish it by every means that he shows us. And let's pray for those means. Let's pray for those openings that he'll give us a door of utterance. And so ends the book of Acts and the four preaching trips of the Apostle Paul. Three more things before I let you go. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ 
with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Those are strange words to end the book of Acts. Is Paul in prison in Rome when Luke wrote this? Why doesn't he say so? Why doesn't he say anything about him dying? Why doesn't he say anything about his trial? Why does he say in the past tense, Paul dwelt two whole years? Why doesn't he say Paul's dwelling in a hired house in Rome? I'm not going to answer it yet. I'm going to go here and distract you for a minute. These are Paul's epistles that he wrote from Rome and Italy that the New Testament gives credit for of coming out of that place. So there, there are seven epistles of seven epistles that Paul wrote from Rome and Italy from, from that uh, shipping trip, that, we, that boat trip that we just read about in Acts 27 and 28. So we should be very thankful for those wonderful epistles that we got as by virtue of Paul being saved from shipwreck. Did Paul's trips end here? Where is Paul when Luke wrote that? And Paul dwelt. He doesn't say, and Paul is dwelling. Do Paul's trips end here? Or have I misled you by wanting to summarize the book of Acts about Gentiles and go on? They probably don't end here. Right. What? You're asking? I thought there were four trips of Paul. There were. How do you know there's not another one? I'm going to show you that there was another one. It's just not in the book of Acts. And so you give up too easily by thinking Acts covers everything. Why didn't he say Paul was dwelling in a house in Rome? Why didn't he say he had his head cut off? Why didn't he say anything about the current status of Paul if Paul was in Rome? Paul wasn't in Rome. Luke ended his history of Paul's trips right there at Acts 28 and verse 31. But there was very likely another trip with circumstantial evidence that the Bible provides, but it's not in the book of Acts. So people get nervous by finding all the circumstantial evidence, but it's not listed in the book of Acts. Now just watch. Because it doesn't have Luke's detailed record from one place to the next place with names given and ships given and seas given and all that, you tend to think that uh, Paul was stuck in Rome. How do you know that Paul wasn't in a hired ho a rental house for two years? He was released after that because he had committed no crime worthy of death. He spent the next three to five years in a couple of other trips, both west and east, and then he was arrested again and quickly brought before Nero. He tells us about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he's beheaded. You say, can you prove that there was some gap like that between Acts 28.31 and him being beheaded in 2 Timothy 4? I think so. We conclude 2 Timothy was Paul's last epistle. Follow me. By things stated in it and his preparation for death. Here's what he wrote. 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. I am now ready to be offered. Paul knew that he was now ready to die. And the time of my departure is at hand. 2 Timothy 4, 6, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I've got all my preaching trips in, not just four. 
I added that as verse 8. I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand, and I'm showing you this verse because we believe these are Paul's last written words, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And you just think that they are the 24th month of Acts 28, 30, and 31. Paul's last chapter implies a fifth trip, at least. But we are without Luke's itinerary journal, so we only know some of the places, not the order. The, look at this, 413. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Wait a minute. Paul's just about to die, and he's writing Timothy, that cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, bring it and bring the books, but especially the parchments. How long had it been since he was in Troas, according to Acts? Five years. How do we get that? Two years hired house in Rome, two years in Caesarea, and all the stuff in between, including three months on the island of Malta. We have five years. If only four trips that are recorded in the book of Acts, it had been at least five years since Paul was in Troas. Why is he asking for that stuff now? He, he's been cold for five winters without his cloak? What did he write his epistles on without paper? What did he do without reading material? Go to the public library? He's asking for books. Think about it. We got a problem, don't we? The problem is we need Acts 29 and 30 in the way of chapters, and we don't have it because the Lord shortchanged us that way, and we glorify his beautiful name. That Paul did go to other places. Zach, we're getting there. First question this morning from Zach, Romans 15, 24, and 28. Did Paul go to Spain? We don't know for sure, but you know the terminology of his commitment to get to Spain. And I can tell you that church historians say that the Apostle Paul visited the most western extreme parts of the Roman Empire, and Italy is not western extreme. Italy is central. How about this one? In the same chapter, 2 Timothy 4, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou where also? For he hath greatly withstood our words. So some Alexander the coppersmith in Ephesus, Paul's warning Timothy about him. If there's only four trips of Paul, and this is the last time he was, he never left Rome, Italy. It had been at least five years since Alexander's resistance. Why is he telling Timothy about it now? Wouldn't Timothy already know that Alexander the coppersmith was an enemy? Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at my lead him sick. Poor guy, he's been sick for five plus years. Are you with me? This is, are you? If only four trips, if all we've got about Paul is Acts. And see, my purpose was not the life of Paul. 
My purpose was Gentiles for two Ps, praise and publish. But there's more, and I'm giving it to you right now. And whether the Lord takes us next Sunday into trips five and six or whatever, we'll just have to wait on that. But right now, I just want to share with you that there's more about Paul. If only four trips, it had been at least five years since Paul left Trophimus at Ephesus sick. Why is he writing Timothy about it now? Because he's in Rome about to appear before Nero when he's going to get his head cut off. He now knows that this time he's about to be offered. He wasn't guilty of any capital crime before. He was two years in his hired house, and he was released because when Luke wrote Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, he doesn't make any mention about the current status of Paul because everybody knew that Paul had been released. Nothing, nothing else about him in Rome. Pastor, are you teasing us about Paul? Are there other verses like these that indicate Paul was released from captivity in Rome for a fifth preaching trip before a second arrest and then his execution? Amen to both. Here we go. Uh, Zach, here we are. Romans 15. Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. Paul is very committed to get to Spain. Philippians 1. I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. We know the verse. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. This is written from Rome. And having this confidence... Paul was confident about something. I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Oh, no! You mean there's a fifth trip? There might be a sixth. He may have gone east on the first one and west on the sixth one because Italy's in the middle. Philippians 2. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently. Remember, this is written from Rome. So soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. I think it's going to go well with me. I believe I'll be released, and I'll see you shortly in Philippi. For this cause left I thee in Crete. When? Was Titus on the ship with him when they were at the fair havens? When was he in Crete? That thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Now there's a bunch of stuff going on that is not in the book of Acts. Do you feel that Luke let us down? Or did God just arrange all this to make us read our Bibles a little more carefully? Then just think that Acts has it all. Nicopolis is on the other side of the Greek peninsula over there by Croatia. And Paul's going to winter there. And he wants Titus to come to him after he put Titus in Crete. Philemon, you should have. But, but withal, prepare me also a lodging. Paul's writing from prison. Remember, he used it as one of his appeals. I'm an old man now and I'm in prison. Please follow the suggestion of my little epistle to you. For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be given unto you. He wasn't hopeless. 2 Timothy 4 isn't his first trip. 
Because 2 Timothy 4, he was hopeless of leaving. He wasn't planning on leaving. I'm ready to depart. Now is my time. I'm about to be offered as a sacrifice to Jesus Christ. Pastor, are you teasing us? I am, and I'm enjoying every single verse. (laughs) Hebrews 13. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this. I want you to pray. I want you to pray that I may be restored to you the sooner. He went back to Judea. Hebrews is written to Judea and Jerusalem. You say, no way. You mean after Acts 21, when he was captured in the city of Jerusalem in the temple? I pray, pray for me that I may be restored to you the sooner. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. <laughs> oh, Lord, thank you. Not only are there these inspired verses of Paul's travels outside Luke's book of Acts, There are accounts by ancient church historians of Paul visiting Spain and the western fringes of the Roman Empire, including some reports he went to Britain. And these church historians are not writing in 1000 AD or 1500. They're writing in the first and second centuries about Paul. So we've got one more thing to do. Our study here was, this is explaining my teasing you. Our study here was to look at four trips for the sake of simplicity to emphasize the gospel to Gentiles. That's been my purpose, to praise and to publish. If the Lord convicts further, we may construct a fifth trip by circumstantial evidence. But remember, we don't have Luke as our guide, and our itinerary will be subject to great scrutiny because we will not know in which order he went to any of those places that he obviously went to. So it's better just to list them and see that there's quite a few that Luke didn't cover that happened that after Paul was released. And then he was captured again, and Nero changed drastically. Nero in 61, 62 AD, he wasn't a great threat to Christians, but by the time of 65, 66, 67 rolls around, he's a terrible threat to Christians. Mm -hmm. Pastor, is there anything else you want to tell us before leaving Paul's fourth trip? Yes. In Philippians, written from Rome, he said that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. The palace and government of the Romans know about me and in all other places. Not the world, Rome. I'm known in the palace and I'm known throughout the city. Same epistle from Rome. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. There have been a number converted that are members of Caesar's own household. His last words, his last words, my brethren, do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. And we have introduced to us four names, three of which are connected to the palace of Caesar and Britain. Here is what the Roman Empire looked like, and the light brown color is there because it occurred around the time of the Apostle Paul. 
Paul's first preaching trip commenced in around 45 AD. In 43 AD, Claudius Caesar, have we had him mentioned in the book of Acts? Acts 18, he ordered all Jews to depart from Rome. Claudius Caesar invaded Britain and won. Julius Caesar had invaded Britain in 50 BC, 50 years before our Lord, and was defeated. However, they left some soldiers there just to get along with the people. And so there was trade between Britain and Italy, and Claudius Caesar in 43 AD conquered Britain. Paul's out on his first trip. Second trip, he's pushed into Europe. Then he wants to go to Rome. He wants to go to Italy. He wants to go to Spain. He's pushing west. He's pushing west. He's pushing west. We don't know if he made it to Britannia or not. We don't need him to have made it because we have other characters. Caracatus was the king of the Wales, king of Wales, and his daughter was named Claudia after Claudius Caesar. And she was in Rome, and she married Pudens, a Roman senator. This information is available by church historians. The gospel was carried to the British Isles by Pudens and Claudia and others among them while Paul was still alive, doing his evangelistic best in the city of Rome so that all in the palace, so that those in the palace and all in Rome knew about the Apostle Paul. So that when travelers came from Wales to Rome, there was a notable prisoner to look up that was a representative of God. And Claudia's mother, we're told about her, she was convicted of a crime of being given over to superstition. Just like the Jews called it that sect that is everywhere spoken against because her mother became a Christian. And it was, it was 130 AD that the king of Wales confessed Christianity and was the first Christian emperor in the world the first Christian king in the world. And so we have that story to add to it as well, so that you don't think that Paul just retired in his rental home because of Acts 28, 30, and 31. Pudens and Claudia, at least, of these four named, are connected strongly to Baptist history in Wales. Wales is the western part of England. London is on the eastern part. It's the lowlands. But then it goes up to the midlands, then it goes up to mountains. And the mountains in the west of Wales was a safe place to hide. There are numerous church historians that have said that Christianity was preserved in its purity in the mountains of Wales. They had never heard of infant baptism till they were confronted with it in 600 AD by Augustine of Canterbury, the monk Austin sent by Pope Gregory I to Christianize England. And so he arrived and Christianized the Saxons, and I'm not talking about the Saxons. I'm talking about the Welsh people. The Saxons, they don't, they're so superstitious, they were glad to take a Roman monk's baptism, and 10,000 were baptized in a river there in one day. But then he asked for the Welsh to meet him, and 1,200 Welsh some say ministers, came out of those mountains to meet with him, and he gave them three conditions. You'll submit to the authority of Rome. You'll give Christianity to your children, infant baptism, 
and you'll follow our rules for Easter. And they wouldn't have anything of the three. And so the words in Old English of since you will not take my mercy in these three things, then you have asked for yourself wretched misery. And he sicked the Saxons on them and slaughtered them, except for 50 ministers that fled. That's the historical record. The gospel was taken to Wales by those named Pudens and Claudia and others. It was kept pure from Paul's day in spite of terrible persecutions of Diocletian in 300 and Augustine of Canterbury in 600. Do you know what's one hour east of us right now? The PD River. The Welsh up in Pennsylvania and Delaware asked for a land grant from the South Carolina government, and they came down here speaking Welsh and believing what we believe, speaking the Welsh language, and they established Welsh Neck, a great big land grant, and that's where they spoke Welsh, worship God the way we do in simplicity, and it's still called this day Welsh Neck, Baptist Association of Churches, that's part of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is totally separate from William Screven coming down from Maine. Welsh Track Baptist, Baptist Church in Delaware came over all 16 members of it in 1701 from Wales. And so that's the end. And so now you're the end. I have no more secrets for you. I love the God of heaven. Amen. And he has sent us the gospel. And I love, the, I love our Chinese brother who isn't here today. And I shared with you what he said to me, how thankful he is to God for the gospel going west to get to England so that it could go east to get to him. And I love that perspective on the world because the British Empire was so large, though its origin is just that little island in the sea. You know, those isles in the sea are sometimes spoken about in the Bible, aren't they? The sun never set in the British Empire. And so the gospel went worldwide, and the English language went worldwide, the King James Bible went worldwide, and we thank the Lord for everything that he's done. We don't know for sure if Paul went to Spain. Don't, don't, under, don't misunderstand me today. We don't know if Paul went to Britain. There is more evidence that he went to Spain, but look at the effect. His preaching in Spain did not bear fruit. Like like it bore fruit in England and Britain and the places that he went where it did bear fruit. Antioch of Syria was an enormously successful church. We don't know if Paul made it to Spain or not. We know that he certainly intended to, and we know that there is a gap in there where he went to a number of places that 2 Timothy 4 tips us off about. We just don't have Luke's detailed itinerary journal about how the trip was made and what city followed which city. We don't have any of that. So we're just left to realize something happened in Rome that he was released and was able to travel and he went right back to work again because we can see that. And then he was back in Rome and he knew he was about to be offered. This time was going to be different because Nero was entirely different in 66 and 67 than he had been in 60 through 62. And so the gospel made it to us. What are we going to do? Two Ps. We're going to praise God for sending his gospel to us Gentiles. Where would we be today? you got four options. Ganges River, incense to Buddha, kissing a meteorite in Mecca, or in the Vatican, kissing St. Peter's toe. 
That covers just about most of the world. That's where we'd be. But instead, we're here. Thank you, blessed God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.